Eric Ekman is the founder of Outside Van, an Oregon-based designer and manufacturer of full custom adventure-ready sprinter vans. This is one of my shorter interviews, but it's packed with great advice on how to run a company that attracts passionate people and does amazing work. Eric and I are both mountain bikers, so there are a few cycling references in here, but mostly it's just killer advice on how to create a company that's pushing boundaries while selling a premium product. One of my favorite quotes sums up his fast-moving experimental management style. He says, failures are just opportunities for growth. They're not mistakes, they're expenses. You're out of business when you can't afford your mistakes. And with that, please enjoy episode 26 of the Build Cycle Podcast. by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. So Eric, you are the founder of Outside Van, which makes some incredibly badass modified Sprinter vans for people who just want to take that vehicle and get out and do something. And you guys have models that are kind of tailored to paddleboarding or water sports, some that are catered to like mountain biking, others for just straight up camping and, and sort of everything in between. So I'd love to hear like where the idea for this came from and what prompted you to go after this? How'd you get started? Well, the idea came out of necessity. Uh, I used to be a pro snowboarder, and after that, I became a product rep. And I was never really that good of a pro snowboarder. There just weren't any snowboarders that long ago. Um, I mean, I was the second one in Oregon, so it wasn't that hard to be good. (laughs) Um, And, uh, yeah, it's serious business these days. Um, And uh, then I became an outdoor product rep, but I was more in concerned with using the product and living the dream than I was uh, selling things. So uh, I had to sleep in my uh, car, uh, not in a hotel. Um, And uh, I couldn't even afford most of the trade shows. So what kind of car uh, was it? What were you sleeping in? Well, actually the first outside van was a a rabbit, (laughs) a a rabbit, Volkswagen rabbit without a passenger seat. And I had a bed on the passenger side. Jeez. And um, my gear all fit in a roof box or behind the driver's seat. And then the next outside van was uh, I upgraded to a Subaru wagon. We have all had a Subaru. Um, that didn't really do a lot for me. From there, I went to uh, um, Suburban, and I did a, a Suburban and pulled like a, a cargo trailer. And that worked, worked really good for showing product, uh, but it was sucked to drive and park. I went to Seattle and saw accounts once and never drove it again. And from there, I, I kind of got into vans. I went with that old Toyota moon buggy, the one before the Privia that looks like a doorstop. And uh, I did the first conversion in the Home Depot parking lot for $200. 
And from there, I went to the Ford Econoline, and I couldn't afford a nice one, so I bought a totaled one for $3,100 in a wrecking yard that had 300,000 miles on it. And the first interior was a used Westphalia interior out of a VW van because I couldn't afford one. And then I put a climbing wall on the side because the van had been smashed on the side, but I didn't have time uh, money for body work. So I just beat the side out with hammers and made it kind of a climbing wall and painted it gray and put and bolted climbing holds on it and used it. Uh, the story was that's how we got up on the roof racks. <laughs> and uh, that was the first outside van. Um, and I ended up driving that thing all over the West, um, chasing single track and surf and down into Mexico and came back and sold it. And uh, uh, that was, I guess, the first official outside van. And after that, uh, you know, I built a brand new Ford van and uh, shipped it over to Maui and uh, lived in it for a winter and um, sold it and flew home. And uh, I was still a product rep. And the van's just getting more and more evolved. I, uh, me and my wife would convert them in the parking lot of our, um, or, you know, in our, in our driveway. And, you know, this was a long time ago. This was almost 30 years ago. Oh, wow. And, um, that just kept happening and happening and happening. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm still, I've got, you know, I'm repping a half dozen product lines, just like all the other reps trying to make ends meet. But I actually had, you know, I, I think I had, uh, four employees and then I had seven employees and then I started thinking about quitting my day job. And um, the vans just kept getting cooler and cooler because I kept wanting cooler and cooler vans. And um, I just uh, kept finding more talented people to build the vans for me. It started originally with subcontractors building all this stuff. And I did my day job, um, you know, filling my orders and doing my RMAs and all my rep stuff um, from about 3 and 4 in the morning till about 7.30 in the morning. And then I would hit the road and drive around all day and chase subcontractors and powder coat and go to the tire store and pick up vans and pick customers up at the airport and go to the stereo store and just do everything piecemeal. And I did that for probably a decade. Wow. And um, that's kind of it, uh, how, how it started. All right, so I want to um, back you up for a second because you said you did the first conversion on that Toyota in a Home Depot parking lot for $200. What in the world did you do to that? I got the, you know, that silver, a lot of silver bubble wrap, that stuff you put around hot water heaters, <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of double-sided uh, tape and some spray glue and uh, some plywood and some, you know, uh, like legs you know and i'd screwed them and made a little bed back there and uh actually drove that thing into canada um riding bikes and surfing and almost didn't make it back into america with that thing um they damn near dismantled the whole van they'd never seen anything inside it looked like some kind of rave inside with the i had a disco ball in it <laughs> and a flashlight tape shining on the disco ball and with the silver bubble wrap and i had no windows in it either so it was pretty rowdy inside that's awesome. And so, what year was that? Um, I'm not very good with uh, uh, time or dates, as you already know from trying to schedule this interview. <laughs> um, but I've been at this about 27 years. Okay. So, so we'll say like 1990. Pretty, pretty, yeah, pretty early on. 
Right on. All right. And then the, from there, like you, you kind of told us the progression of the bands and everything. And, and yeah, I had heard that some of the original ones, once you kind of turned it into a business and you were making bands for others, the, the original process was that you would farm out the construction of this and, and maybe even to some of the other companies that are doing custom bands. Is that accurate? Well, uh, 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 well originally I built them all. And then I had people build them and then we couldn't build enough. So yes, we started to farm stuff out and we farm stuff out to like hitch manufacturers and uh, seventies van converters (laughs) and any of the people that you think today might be a competitor. I probably educated them how to build that van. I mean, uh, three panel beds that are removable so you can put bikes underneath them, just stuff like that. I mean, that all started with outside van, um, not anyone else. Right on. And but we 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 had subcontractors build stuff for years because, you know, like I said, I had a I had a day job before we ever had a company, and we built a brand before we built a business. Okay, but so how many, like, how long did it take to get to that point? From you know, let's just say nineteen ninety when you did your your Toyota yourself to maybe selling, you know, 10 vans or so. How long did that take? Seven years. Oh my gosh. So not, not, I mean a year. It was, it was a long, I think at the most I had going at a time with subcontractors was probably four vans at a time being built. And what was the lead time? The lead time was anything the subcontractors wanted. And then generally (laughs) when we got more successful, they would try to steal our customers and a lot of them are in business today, um, and good for them. I mean, uh, they've all uh, been pivotal in us getting where we are, and I'm friends with pretty much all of them. Uh, you know, we're, we're, there's plenty of people that want a rad van, and I just try to do something different than they're doing. Yeah. And, and the only reason we ever left any subcontractor was because uh, there was never any money problems or anything like that. It was because we hit the ceiling of what they wanted to create, if that makes any sense. Um, they didn't want to take it any farther, and I'm insatiable. Um, right. So the customization the just got to a where, point where they wouldn't fabricate what you wanted? Yeah. I mean, basically, I, I'd say a third of the guys that work for us now are came from Christensen Yachts and various other yacht manufacturers. So that's where I... Um, get a lot of our guys from because you know when you can build a 160 million dollar boat you don't roll your eyes at me when i say we're going to do this in a van right yeah and i mean like it's very easy to get lost in your website for an hour just oogling the insanely beautiful vans that you guys do i mean the woodwork's incredible so are, are you guys yeah, doing I mean, everything in-house now correct yes everything in-house and how long have you been doing that when when did you start or, or when did you kind of move all of the process of manufacturing into your own place? Uh, I, I don't know, about a half dozen years ago. Okay. Um, uh, as, as long as 10 years ago, but, you know, it's like it slowly became more and more us. Um, you know, last little details took a long time, like cabinets. You know, that was something we, we continued to um, – the only thing we really sub out now is a um, powder coat. I don't have a powder coat oven. And what kind of things um, are you powder coating? Just small bits or the whole vehicle? Yeah, uh, small bits. 
um, small bits and, and, you know, everything we do is metal is, is aluminum or stainless. We don't do any steel. All our hardware is stainless. Um, I, I make it a point to, uh, build the vans in the most expensive exotic way possible and never compromise on that. Right. Um, which is, uh, kind of different from a lot of people thinking, but it's, it's worked for us. We grew in 2009 when there was a recession. So there's people out there that want the best. Yeah. I think that's a good market to have if you can do it right. Like the people that can afford the best don't usually dicker over price a whole lot, right? It, it is what it is and they want it. So they buy it. Yeah. But, but I mean, there's been a shift in that, honestly, then the shift's been in the last year or so with outside van is, um, We've gotten to a kind of a tipping point in size um, where our quantities are to a point, and we actually have like an engineering department and a CAD department, and um, we can reproduce, uh, which brings uh, our costs down. And I've actually passed that cost directly through to the consumer. I mean, a lot of people don't really associate with us with this, but... I mean, we have a brand new four-wheel drive Mercedes with a rad color and rad options converted under ninety thousand bucks, and the van's over sixty. So, not very many people don't really realize we're even in that space yet, um, but we are, and we haven't compromised. Uh, most people like uh, when they do a sub-brand, they do a sub-brand and a lesser quality. It's the same quality, um, just maybe a little less stuff. Mm-hmm. And is that uh, so? Has this process change helped you guys speed up the lead times? Because I know, like a couple of years ago, when I first found out about you guys, we did a little story on Bike Rumor about it. It might have been like three years ago now. Um, I was also asking questions about doing a van, and you know, the lead times were six, eight, nine months. Yeah, no, they they've shortened significantly. The lead time to get in our production queue is still long. I mean, it's less than some of our competitors, um, but the actual time to build your van, a van that used to take us four months now takes us four weeks. Wow, nice. And, and I've passed those efficiencies on to the um, customer. Okay. And uh, real real soon, you'll be able to buy the parts carry out and build your own van. That's where I'm headed next. Oh, that's really cool. Let's let's talk about that in, in a little bit then, kind of like some future plans. Uh, so I want to I want to talk like, economics a little bit because it's if i remember right when i was talking to your team about it is like basically i would have to get my loan approval for the van buy the van and then it essentially sits there for say six months before you guys can start working on it so i'm paying for this van that i'm not even going to be able to drive for maybe up to a year well now you know less but how how does that work like how do you guys work with the customers to have that make sense? Because it, it seems tough for some people well, that, to justify. Well, I mean, that that's changed to the point where, you know, I'd say going into spring, you know, I, I put 10 slots on the schedule that um, you could have a van within six weeks. Um, and that's and and that's if you're doing minimal customization, right? Right. And then you bring it back for the around two. Okay. So you're not waiting six months to get your van. Um, we've made some adjustments to the schedule to make that possible. So do you guys, how does it work exactly? Like does outside van buy the vehicle and add in the cost and then just like sell 
sell the vehicle to the customer at the finished price or does the customer buy the van and then bring it to you and then pay you for the upfits? Well, we, we're not trying to make any money selling vehicles. So we just pass through whatever we get the vehicle through to the, the end user. Um, and the only reason we even buy vehicles in the first place is the Mercedes four wheel drive sprinters are hard to get. Right. So we have the foresight to buy them and stock them and have them for you. So most people wait six to eight months just to get their van. So, I mean, you went down to your Mercedes dealer. That's what they'd tell you if you wanted a color they didn't have in stock, if they even had one in stock. So I have that van here now. So you can wait six months and have a converted van. So we actually stock them and and that ties up an immense amount of capital and, and resources to do that. But it's the only way we can guarantee we have iron here for you, you know, um, and if you want to bring us a van, that's fine too. Um, okay. It's just better not have anything done to it. We don't, we don't do partial conversions, so but the, you can bring us a van. Right. So the purchase process is like, if I were going to buy one of those from you, I would put down a deposit on the vehicle with the spec that I want. So let's just say I, I wanted one with all the customizations. It was $120,000. Would I put down a deposit mm-hmm. or would I just go ahead and sign the loan paperwork and start making payments on that vehicle? No, you'd, you'd put down a deposit to secure your spot and you'd pay for your van whenever it arrived. Oh, okay. If it was here now, you pay for it now. If it, if you wanted to pick one that came, was coming in a little closer to your start date, you'd probably want to pay for it then. So for now, it's just a deposit. And the deposit's only $10,000. Gotcha. So how do you guys work that relationship with Mercedes? Is Are you basically set up as a dealer? No, we actually go pay a sticker price. You just buy <laughs> enough of them? I mean, we, we have a relationship with Mercedes. We always have access to vehicles, but um, we're not getting any special deal on the vans. Now, why is that? It seems like, because we'll tell, well, let's tell it's the a, story a, about a, the car a, you're simple, driving right now. A, well, yeah, all right. Um, it's a simple case of supply and demand. Mercedes can sell every four-wheel drive Sprinter that hits the country. And there's only 3,000 four-wheel drive Sprinters are going to hit the country this year. Believe me, there's more than 3,000 people that want one. So um, they can sell them for whatever they want. And they sell them for full sticker all the time. So why why would they sell them to me for any less? Okay, but could you not? They, they did they did hook me up on a corporate lease for a car, <laughs> super cheap. Like I was a Mercedes executive, which is really nice, and that's a perk for buying as many vans as we do. But uh, yeah, they're they're not they they can sell as many of these vans as they want. They had no idea how four wheel drive crazy America was, um, and that availability is going to change in a few years when they start building them in America. And uh, will it be the same product? No, it'll be a little different, but uh, they're going to have availability of those vans here. All right. So and, how, what um, percentage of it, your vans now are going out the door for four-wheel drive? Is that what everybody wants? Uh, I mean, we do, we do, a, we do a few, um, we do a few two-wheel drive. We do, we do, a, we do a few, uh, we do, a, we do a few, um, two-wheel drives yeah and uh, we even do some Ford Transits believe it or not so the customization uh, when you start ordering these parts for yourselves you know as you progress from using the third parties how did you find the various suppliers and like how do you figure out the margins 
Like, uh, if it costs you X, how do you figure out what you're going to charge Y? Uh, you know, um, my controller would have to answer that question. I can't. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't get into the how we're going to charge. I get into the why we're going to charge. Okay. Like, what can you share? Like an approximate. Like, what's your margin on it? Say on a finished vehicle. Like, what do you guys need to end up with to? The the more the more custom the less. I build vans regularly that we lose money on. Now, why would you do that? And the more. <laughs> because you wanted to because it was awesome and you didn't realize how hard it was going to be to pull that off. Okay. And that's why Vanilla Bikes is different than Trek. Right. You know, at the the end of the year, you know, I live in a thousand square foot house and don't have any bills at this point in my life and enjoy what I do. So when you do something like that, I mean, obviously you don't want to do that on every van. When you when you do something like that, is that you're willing to eat that as kind of a R and D cost? Then, yeah, R and D costs money. <laughs> yeah, and you know we could borrow money to do that like a traditional company, but then we wouldn't have the culture we have, and the people that work here wouldn't get to ride their bikes all the time and not come to work on a powder day. <laughs> so some customers get lucky Joy- in that you do something over the top for them as a learning experience. Every, every everything everything's over the top. It's just we don't always plan right, <laughs> <laughs> and that's our that that's our problem, not our customers. Right. And that's called doing it the right way the first time. If we take care of the customers we have, we don't have to worry about the ones we don't. Right. Well, and you guys seem to have a great reputation, and, and even the the used ones don't stay on the market for very long, from what I've seen. Most of them don't even hit the market. We sell probably three a month that so-and-so is going to trade one in and get a new one, and we just put the word out there, and it's gone. They never even hit the website. That's crazy. That's great. So how many vans do you guys produce in a year now? I don't want to say. Okay. Is it, is it growing every year? Absolutely. How do you deal with competition? You know, like the only one I could name off the top of my head would be Sportsmobile, but I, I don't know that they do the level of customization. I'm, I'm pretty sure they don't. You know, like they do there decent is, there, stuff. There, there, is no, there, is no, there is no competition. That, 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 that's as ridiculous as us and them. There, there is no. They're doing what they're doing, and we're doing what we're doing. And if we focus on doing what we're doing the best we can, I don't have to worry about what they're doing. I don't even pay attention, to be honest with you. And I haven't been on a sprinter form in four years. I have <laughs> no idea what they're doing, and I'm not concerned. Right. All I'm concerned is we're doing it the best we can every day. Yeah, which seems to be working, right? Yeah. Okay, I have a geeky tech question. So if I were going to buy a Sprinter with the plans of doing some custom work down the road, like what are the base options that you need? Because there's there's so many options on the Mercedes website, it's kind of mind-numbing. But like what are some of the, like do you want the bigger alternator? Like if somebody needed like a, a blank canvas to be done right, you know, a year or two from now, what would you tell them to get? I'd tell them less is more. The less you get the, um, in the conversion, the happier you'll probably be because the better it will drive. And um, 
unless you've had a few and know exactly what you want. Um, and as far as the van goes, make sure you get factory cruise control. <laughs> so do you need like the, the beefed up alternator and, and, uh, maybe wiring system that Mercedes offers? That so, just depends on your needs and everybody's needs are different. So if I answered your needs, it'd be different from the guy behind you. Yeah. So what do you do? Like, how does the electrical load? And, and actually, I, like, I'm kind of curious from that. So you guys probably need to hire like electrical engineers and uh, yeah, yeah. You know, carpenters. We, we, and... we, we have a few electrical engineers and one of them uh, came from a military attack uh, vessel company. <laughs> And we can do things electrically with Mercedes fans that Mercedes can't even figure out how we do. That's awesome. Because so if that did... van senses a, a 0.04 amp current draw where it shouldn't, it'll shut itself down and go into a protection mode. They're a CAN bus network. They're not easily hacked. When you started hiring these people, how, how did you vet them? Like, how did you find these people? And what were some of the first major roles that you hired for and, and delegated off of your plate? The um, people find us. If you do good, do good things, good people come to you. And if you always take care of people, then they'll take care of you. And next thing you know, their friends want to come. And it just built organically. It takes decades, but we have all the right people now. And so is everybody Didn't there? Didn't happen overnight. Kinda, is everybody there kind of into, into something outdoorsy? Are they all driving your vans? No, not at, not really. Some of them are, a lot of them are just full on uh, electrical uh, video game guys. A lot of them are car heads. A lot of them are into weapons. Um, they're all obsessive about something, but they all want to make really cool things every day and come home from work stoked about what they built. Um, no, not everybody's outdoorsy. Our sales team is, but the guys that build the vans, not so much. And the sales team is because that's who the majority of our customers are. Right. So when you have a project comes in that wants something, do you, like, what is your role in the company now? And how much, how much do you kind of dictate, say, like, here's what needs to be done, here's how to do it? Or do you give the team total creative control to, or freedom to uh, find the best way to get something done? I enforce our core values. I um, decide why we're going to go somewhere um, and where we're going to go and not how we're going to get there. And uh, we build a lot of things that maybe um, you don't see on our website, um, but I keep a real tight lid on what our brand look and feel is that is forward facing to the public. And, at this point, the company's grown to a point where that's pretty much all we build. But there was a time when we built stuff that um, I just didn't showcase. Because why? Um, trying to build a specific brand. You can't be a cross-country company and a downhill company all at once. I mean, what? You know, there's uh, Specialized is really good at winning podiums, and Yeti's probably really good at making enduro bikes. Um, everybody's good at what they do. Um, at this point, we're not trying to do everything. Um, we are just doing what you see on our website at this point. 
it deviates a little bit. I got a couple projects that are just about ready to drop. Actually, you'll see them within the next 30 to 90 days that are a bit on the edge from what you've seen in the past. Um, and the whole purpose of that is just to show you where the edge is and show you it might have moved. Hmm. And so is that outside, like not with sprinters, something totally different? Uh, one will be with a Transit and uh, Ford. I think it's in the Echo Boost. I think it's a pretty cool platform. It hauls ass. It's fun to drive. Um, and the uh, um, sprinters, yeah, just kind of different from what you've seen from us. You'll see it, you'll see it really, really soon. We're actually building some uh, e-bike specific charging vehicle. Oh, sweet. Just some in- interesting stuff you haven't seen before. Yeah, cool. So when you do something like that, is that sort of just to stretch your creative muscles or is it a calculated business decision? Say, hey, look, like this is where we see the market going. <laughs> we didn't get, get, we, didn't, we, didn't get, we didn't get, we didn't get here by any calculated business. <laughs> okay. You know, it was uh, by design of uh, doing what we were passionate about. And when it didn't work out, getting kicked in the face and moving forward. Um, yeah, was was there because I can see that being a very expensive way to grow if you're not careful about also watching the numbers in some respect. Is it like, was there a time when you guys just went too far and maybe struggled or has it always been a pretty solid business? Lot, 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 lots of times. How'd you come back from that? Perseverance or ignorance. <laughs> well, so like a lot of recently, like... recently, a lot of education and a lot of consultants. Right. Do you rely on outside consultants to kind of help keep you on track or how do you use them? Uh, we, we, we did, we did for a while, but I mean, in the last uh, 45 days, I've been to a finance ops course in Wharton, and I wrapped up a three years master's for an entrepreneur program at MIT. So, uh, what are some of the lessons uh, you took away from that that you've implemented? Like, what what's helping the most? Uh, it doesn't really matter what kind of business you're doing. There's good business and bad business. So, uh, we're trying to learn how to do good business. We've always known how to make cool vans. How do you do good business? Um, oh, that's, a, that's, I can't, I couldn't sum that up in a sentence. You can use as um, many sentences as you want, but yeah, I, like <laughs> I want to, I want to tell people cause like I've done a lot of stupid things. I mean, I've wasted so much money on my businesses in the past and a couple of them have failed and I'm still paying off debt from that stuff. So I'm always trying to eat. Tyler, out, like, Tyler, what, Tyler what did, 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 did you learn Tyler, did you learn anything from those failures? Oh, I learned a ton. So they were stepping stones to where you are today. So how is it a failure? They're just opportunities for growth. But I try and look back. I'm like, okay, if there were there were some seemingly core lessons about finance that had I known, I would have been in a totally different spot. So it, you know, with a getting an entrepreneur's degree or whatever it was, it's, it seems like there must be some key lessons, you know, to kind of guide you as a business owner. Well, they're, they're, they're not mistakes. They're, they're expenses and you're out of business when you can't afford your expenses. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, does that leave profit at the end of the year? No. I mean, this year, all our profits are going into, um, making a better product faster. 
Right. Um, I'm reinvesting our, all our profits this year into um, um, back into the company. There, there are no profits this year. Is that just building out the infrastructure and capabilities to produce more vans? Yeah, or I mean, you, you, you can you can you can take a short road or a fast road. I mean, and the shortest road possible happens a lot in Silicon Valley. You get a venture capitalist to fund you. You come up with a concept, then you have to bring the concept to market. Then the concept has to turn into a brand, and the brand has to generate revenue. Blah blah blah. And at the end of the day, if it's wildly successful, your ownership is heavily diluted. Your core values are compromised, and the venture capitalist makes a whole bunch of money, and it's like gambling for him. Some horses win, some don't. Um, I've taken, you know, a, a multi-decade approach here that's much slower and only grown as fast as um, my checkbook can grow, so we don't have to compromise our um, values and where we're headed. Um, how many good companies have you know made a deal with an investor and that company is no longer? Yeah, or it's totally different. The original ownership is or gone or what's to be no gone. one wants to work there anymore. <laughs> yeah, no one wants to work there anymore. Yeah. I'm not I'm not gonna say any names in the industry, but you know what I'm talking about. When I was a rep, I was involved in a lot of those companies. I don't want that to ever to happen to mine. Right. If an employee leaves outside van, he generally comes back. It sounds like you guys are running a pretty cool gig there, and you know the people I've spoken to on the phone on your team in the past were always real stoked on what they were doing, um, and, and it, it you know it shows in the quality of the work. I'm going to put a link to your website because I, people are going to waste just as much time there as I have. The two questions I always kind of end my interviews with are: What are a couple of your biggest challenges? And we talked a little bit about that, um, and then what are one or two pieces of advice you'd give? to somebody that wants to do something similar to you? Well, my advice is go for it. There's plenty of space and plenty of opportunity for anyone that wants to go for it. Um, send it. And if you're going to send it, it's a good idea to scout the line first so you have a plan and don't end up in the hospital. <laughs> um, you don't just roll up on Whistler and send everything. Um, don't write a check with your mouth you can't cash and um, persevere sooner or later no matter what you do you'll be successful I mean it takes 10,000 hours to even get good at something alright so you're gonna be my first one I've got a new question that I'm adding to the end here because after all this is kind of a, a podcast that focuses on people doing cool stuff in a cool space so how do you build adventure into your everyday work week? Uh, I always put my health account first. So you got your bank account, you got your relationship account, you got your different accounts, right? Uh, I put my health account first. So I take care of myself first every morning. I get up at three or four in the morning and a lot of times I ride my bike before most people even hear their alarm clock. And, you know, I just learned how to not sleep or go to bed at six, seven, eight o'clock at night and miss TV shows and beers and all the stuff in your life that really isn't going to propel you forward. And um, once I've taken care of myself, I'm happy. And if I'm happy, I can make others happy. And if I focus on everybody around me's happiness and success, mine's guaranteed. Awesome. That's great advice.
Killer. I mean, well, I know you were. Last. What's that? Leaders eat last, man. Well, I appreciate it. I know you're sitting in the car en route somewhere and took the time out to do this, so I appreciate it. I, I was I was trying to get to Hood River in time to go kite kiteboarding, but that's oh cool. man, I'll, I'll, I'll ride my, I'll ride my bike after my new adopted son goes to bed. Awesome. Well, cool, Eric. Thanks a ton, man. And uh, yeah, next time we're out in Oregon, I want to swing by and check out the place. Yeah, hit me up, uh, and I'll uh, I'll take you on a tour personally. Will do. All right, man. Well, thanks a ton for your time. All right, thank you. Eric exemplifies the go-getter, I-can-do-anything attitude entrepreneurs need to do something big. As he says, just send it is what we all need to do. Just go for it, but pay attention to the landing. The trick is to see where you're going, anticipate the problems, and adjust your course and actions to ensure you're on the right path. Sometimes it's easy to see all the potential problems and give up. I like to look at them as challenges to be overcome. Then, like Eric did by building his own custom vans for personal use and seeing the enthusiastic response, just prove there's a market. No sense in solving problems and moving forward with a product that has no customer. A couple other highlights for me were his 10,000 foot view of the company, leaving the day-to-day -day running to his team, which allows him to dream big and guide the company to the right place for him, his customers, and his employees. Another is how he views his competition, or rather, doesn't. Could you be making a product so good, so unique, or so special that it's hard for anyone to keep up? I hope you enjoyed this episode. If so, please hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast player so you don't miss any of them. And leave me a comment and review so I know what you think and what you want to hear more of. So, here's hoping you can afford plenty of mistakes. Until next week, keep building.